Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Enterprise Linux Security. And this episode is one of those for those of you that really like to, you know, the, this exciting story between good guys, bad guys, and everybody in the middle is just awesome. And if you're an aspiring writer and you want to write, um, you know, fiction, but actually have the technology side of things realistic, this is another episode for you because we don't really like the Hollywood style uh, that people depict this kind of thing. We're going to talk about how people are actually um, in the story that we're going to talk about looking into a situation and figuring out who might be at the other end. And of course, I'm joined by, yet again, my friend right here, Zhao. How are you doing? I'm fine, Jay. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you for another episode. And yeah, like you said, this one is like another movie story right here. And you can't make these things up. It has to be real. It's not, yeah. it's not really possible to come up with something like this. Um, if you remember a few years back when the Silk Road website was a thing, you know, the, the underground market that uh, was living on the Tor network. Um, yep. Apparently, the operator for that got uh, got tracked down because there was some information leaking some loading content that he was doing on the, the main website, on the main page, and it was pulling some some content from the outside, and that was going through IPv4, and they managed to track it down through there. Something like that. It was a leak from the, the website. It wasn't properly secured. So we're looking at something similar. We're looking at a report from the Talos Intelligence Group about how to de-anonymize ransomware domains on the dark web. What this means is that we're looking at different ways to identify where a server that's living on the Tor network can actually be tracked down and located on the real world and pinpointed where exactly it's hosted and who's operating it and all that. And they provide three different techniques which are very, very interesting. Um, do you want to dive right into this? Yeah, I'm thinking so, because this is going to be like a really fun story. Let's just get right into it. Okay. So the first the first method it's actually pretty pretty interesting. Um, when you when you request a, a certificate, if you do it the proper way, the legitimate way, you have to provide some information about yourself. You have to provide some proof of identity. If you're doing it for a business, you have to provide some proof that you actually have a connection to the business and some information that really confirms that you're the person asking for the certificate. So if you're if you're a hacker, if you're part of a ransomware group or something like that, you don't want to provide that information. Obviously, it would make it extremely easy to track you down. On the other hand, there is always the, the possibility of creating a self-signed certificate. Anybody can do that on their system. It's a relatively easy operation to perform. If you want to have a site operating through HTTPS, you can create your own certificate. Whoever visits the website will see a warning on their end on the browser that they're connecting to a website that has that is probably insecure, but it's going encrypted to the website anyway. Um, and the first method that these guys from the Talos Intelligence Group managed that they found, probably not found, but they are using to de-anonymize this website is through the certificate serial number. Every single certificate has a different serial number. Um, it's very difficult to generate a different certificate that points back to the same serial. It's not impossible, but the way that the mathematical functions behind this are made, make it so that you can't have a hash and try to come up with a different certificate to match that hash. You actually have to brute force it. And it can take millions of years. So it's not feasible. It's not something that you can attack. 
So what these guys did was that they accessed the portal for one of the ransomware um, groups and they found that it had a, a certificate there. They inspected the certificate, they inspected the serial number, and then they went to a tool like Shodan. Shodan, um, if you're not familiar, is something that does mass scans. It's like a web crawler. It indexes websites like Google does, but it looks at vulnerabilities, it looks at open ports, it looks at protocols that might be available in a given IP address. And one of the things it also does is look at the certificates that are presented at different IP addresses and at different ports. So it's possible to actually perform a search in Shodan for a given certificate hash. And guess what? They found the same certificate hash on an IPv4 address that matched the one that was being presented on the Tor network. What this means is that they could access the supposedly underground website that's only accessible through Tor. They could now access it through IPv4 like any other regular website. So they managed to track it down to a location in Singapore being hosted by a company there. They managed to identify who was using the, the server. And that's one of the ways that they found that could be used to de-anonymize a website, simply looking at certificate hashes and searching for them, something as simple as that. And yeah, that's brilliant. That is just so much fun. Like a lot of, I find myself like constantly thinking every time I hear of anything like this, like, yeah, that's a good way to do it. And I didn't think of it like, wow, that yeah. of course, that's how you, you that, of course, that's one way you can possibly um, find some information on the other end. It's interesting to note that the guys that were running the website, they actually didn't have it properly configured. The website would respond by IP address alone. When you have an Apache or an Nginx website or something like that, you want it to respond only for DNS. That's for several reasons, but the main ones is so that you can have multiple websites on the same IP mm -hmm. and they would all respond if you were trying to access them through different names. And also because it, and this is just for the sysadmins out there, it makes it easier, if for nothing else, to parse the logs. You can filter it by the, the DNS name of the website that you're trying to, to check. So it's a good practice, and we try to avoid best practice there, but it's a good practice to configure our websites to respond just by name and never by IP. And the way that these guys had the, the website configured, it would respond by the address on the Tor network and by any IPv address configured on the machine. So the minute that the guys from the Talos Intelligence Group found the IP address, they could immediately access the website through IPv4. I, I get this really that. stupid uh, image in my head of, you know, someone saying, um, yes, uh, Mr. Evil Server, please raise your hand here. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially what it is, but in a much more technical way, because it's just like, we're, yeah. we're looking for this IP. Oh, that's me. I'm the evil IP right here. <laughs> Not and then... And then when you find the, the, the <laughs> sorry for cutting you off, then when you find the IPv4 address, you can do you can perform a reverse DNS lookup and you can see what other DNS names are actually pointing there. And they managed to uncover more of their infrastructure this way because they knew the address that was using that was being used by the group, and now they could pinpoint other other services that were there. They actually provided a, a login service there for other servers. They actually provided uh, statistics and all of that. And they managed to track that down as soon as they got the IPv4 address. So yeah, it was basically game over at that point. At that they point, could that... identify the server, find exactly where it was located, who was hosting it, who was paying the bills for it, what other services were there. And just being on the Tor network does not give you 100% security. 
as you can easily see here. Man, nothing, nothing really does. I, I feel like um, another prediction. I think at some point within the life of our podcast, somebody is going to track down uh, ransomware or what have you down to the how-to that they used online to create it. With. <laughs> I guarantee at one point they're gonna, yeah. Like not only do we know like their entire infrastructure, we actually figured out which which particular blog post they read to create this malware in the first place. I promise yeah, you that'll happen. The tutorial that they were looking at. Yep, I guarantee it. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, ransomware as a service is a sink. You can actually pay someone to provide you with the full infrastructure for it, from the, the actual virus, the actual ransomware executable that will encrypt the files, through the back end, the, the files that you need to host to have the to receive the, the payments and all of that. So it's not impossible that what you described is exactly what happened here. Somebody was just fine was just following the instructions for this particular ransomware strain. And that's how this got configured. And the instructions wow. were not that good. <laughs> wow. Just just uh, create a worm and own everybody's files for $49.99 one-time fee. Uh, yeah, it's a, this is a I'm not I'm not even making that up because essentially I know that is kind of what it's like. And shame on you if you're making that service available for people. Um, that's horrible. They actually had another file because when you have the IP address, what are you going to do? You're going to scan that uh, that address for other vulnerabilities. You're going to flip the board and you're going to try to hack those guys. And it was not just the, the virtual host that was improperly configured. They actually had an environment file that was also being served. It wasn't blocked by Apache or whatever web hosting they were using. Um, and it contained, among other things, the, the address for the database server that they were using to store all their data. That's logins, that's, uh, that's the keys that they were using to encrypt files. And the login and password for that database server was also on that environment file. So they gave up pretty much everything just by not having the, the web server properly configured. Always something. I would have gotten it away with it too if it wasn't for... Yeah, those meddling kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... They actually did something like this um, to two different um, ransomware groups, and it was basically the same method. They went through the certificate and looked at the serial and found the match on Trushoden. <laughs> yeah, the amazing—it's amazing the amount of things that you can do with Shodan. It really is. I actually use it myself. I, I, you know, I was a holdover for a while. It took me a while to get into it. Everyone's like, "Yeah, check it out." And I'm like, "Yeah, fine." It was before the podcast even started that I checked it out. But I'm like, "Yeah, this is a really..." Um, interesting service for sure. And uh, one thing that I found out is that you could actually create an account there. No, I'm not telling you to use Shodan and start hacking people, but you could create an account and put your servers on there and your IP addresses, and you can get alerts for when you know something is showing up in Shodan for you know some bad things because you don't want bad things to be happening on your server. So it'll actually send you alerts when uh, there's something that you might want to take a look at. Okay, that was the the method number one that they that they used. Let's move on to method number two. Every website has a favorite icon, the favicon, favorite icon, however you pronounce it. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I would never be able to favorite pronounce favorite icon in the up in the browser address bar and in your bookmark. The icon. little image when you bookmark a website. That's the favorite yep. icon for a website. So it turns out that you can hash an image. You can create, you can generate a hash from a given image. When you when you're creating a website, you try to come up with a different image for that website so that it stands out from the others. 
That being said, when you create a new image, that new image will have a new hash. Guess what? Shodan will let you search for those hashes on favorite icons. What happened here? One of the ransomware gangs had a group, had a website on the Tor network, it had the favorite icon. The Talos intelligence people hashed that icon, searched for it on Shodan, and Tara, they found it again on IPv4. They were able to locate the, the server, see where it was located, who was hosting it, and all of that good stuff right there. Again, awesome. the <laughs> I don't know if this, <laughs> I don't know if it's the techniques themselves that are good or if it's just Shodan that's very complete. But the amount of stuff that Shodan will let you search for, it's impressive. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot and like countless numbers of ways you could do anything in this industry. And sometimes that's a good thing because you know, like one method, you can use another. But also, it kind of makes it hard to hone in on one thing that you can do that's going to work the best. And there's just too many possibilities here. But the ability to to figure out possible avenues, hone in onto one that is more potentially beneficial than the others and use it to find out, you know, threat intelligence about, you know, someone that's doing some wrongdoing. And even to the point where you're getting IPs for their entire infrastructure, um, that is part of the job. And that's, that's such, it's so amazing to see something like that happen. And there's probably so, there's, we'll, we'll probably have other stories like this too, I bet. I love the stories where the bad guys are the ones that are taking <laughs> all the issues. Um, anyway, the, the favorite icon is actually a vanity thing. You don't have to have a vanity icon on, on your website. The, the browser will happily provide you with the default one. It's not flashy, it's not impressive, but if you're running an underground website, why do you need to be flashy? Why do you need it to be pretty? You're just trying to get people's money, to extort people. So, yeah, it's vanity, and vanity gets you busted. But there's a Whatever. saying for that. I can't remember it. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> Whatever. It's great that they did it because they got caught because of it, but it goes to, to show how the, most, the smallest thing, the most insignificant thing on the website, it was not code, it was not failure to protect anything. It was something that you added there just to show off. That's what got you caught. Yep. On times. The third one, the third one is really good. The third one is when the guys doing the ransomware have absolutely no clue how to protect their web servers. Um, so they're very good at hacking other computers and getting files encrypted and all of that and getting money for it, but they have no clue how to write good code or how to protect the infrastructure that they have. So it turns out that these guys, the ones that were uncovered through this last method, they accepted parameters on a URL on a given page from their website. And it turns out that they didn't validate properly those parameters. And they had one parameter called file. It was supposed to be so that they could point to the, the keys when you got the, when you, they received payment, you could point to the keys and it would send you the key. So it turns out that if you'd swapped whatever that file was for dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot slash var slash log slash auth dot log, you would get secure shell log, obviously, because it didn't validate directory traversal, it would accept any input. So basically, from the outside, you could look at all the logs and basically any file in the server because the web server was, was running as root, obviously, as you should every single day, right? Um, mm. It was running as root. It had access to all the files and it didn't validate the parameters, the parameters that they were receiving. So these guys from Talos, they managed to pull the logs 
and in the logs they spotted two IPv4 addresses where um, connections were being made to that server on Tor, and the connection was accepted. So whoever was logging in from those IP addresses actually had credentials to log in. So it turns out that one of those addresses, the one that showed up more, um, was from a virtual private server company. So it was basically a front. Someone was using that just as a jump point to not show their own IP. But on two occasions, a different IP was shown there. What seems to have happened is that the, the VPN connection that the, the ransomware operator used at some point failed and he didn't notice and he tried to connect to the server anyway. So if you're relying on a VPN connection, say like uh, something based on OpenVPN, not WireGuard, but something based on OpenVPN, there is this concept of a kill switch. It's something that happens that blocks all internet traffic if the VPN connection goes down. He didn't that ha have that uh, enabled. So when he tried to connect and the VPN connection was down, he still got the connection, but he went directly from his IP. And that IP showed in the logs and they managed to track it back to him that way. And that's yet another way that you can get caught doing things like this. It was basically because the website was improperly coded. It didn't validate the inputs. It, this is like something that we talked about on the top 25 vulnerabilities or top 20 vulnerabilities from last year. Improper uh, input validation was there in that list. It's what these guys did. Directory traversal, because it was running as root when it shouldn't, so it had access to all the files on the system. And then because it didn't check the input, it would pipe back anything that you asked for it. You could ask for any file on the system and it would give it to you, which is amazing because ransomware gangs usually are not that, um, that giving on their stuff. But yeah, thank you very much for that. It's like they're they're creating a breadcrumb trail that leads to them, but the breadcrumbs are essentially metadata and relevant information that they're just leaving behind. Um, it's, yeah, you, like you said at the beginning, you can't make this up. Yeah, you absolutely cannot. And these are the type of groups that then will have the infrastructure with support portals and all of that to help you get the Bitcoin so that you can pay them faster and all of that. And then they make these types of mistakes. So sometimes the the mountain is not really a mountain. It's just someone who bought something that they have absolutely no clue how to operate. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have never seen this before, but but I'm going to make the assumption that it's probably sold as a turnkey bulletproof way yeah. that you're just going to take over. And there's none of that's true because um, as you're going to find out from this podcast, you have already, but will continue to do so, that there's always a, a an extremely easy thing that can happen at any second that's going to expose something, a packet, an IP, metadata, a hash, and it's absolutely going to um, backfire. And there's, yeah. I don't care if you're using VPN, whatever it is, there's always, always a way to find out something from it. And if there isn't, just so happens to not be, there will probably tomorrow be a way for someone to figure, you know, someone will figure it out. So, yeah. Or someone yeah. makes a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> for example, yeah. that VPN connection dropping and him not didn't noticing it, that's a mistake. If it was properly configured, if he had noticed that it was down, he wouldn't make the connection and his, his own IP wouldn't be there. So it would be impossible to track him down. They would go to the virtual private server and move no further from there. But because mistakes happen and these people are not infallible, that's how they get caught. That's how the Silk Road operator got caught. 
on the code for the web page, he had the, he was pulling some I don't know some resource, some image, some image or some script from an actual IPv4 address, and they were able to track it down from the other end. So they saw where the connections were coming that were reaching that IPv4, and they managed to track it down that way. It's interesting that uh, police enforcement at the time on the trail they never confirmed how they got to it, but it had to be through there. The, Right. There were some shenanigans in that case, but still, they managed to track down the operator. And in this case, they managed to track down these four different ransomware groups. And thank God that they did, because it managed to recover some keys and get some people their data back. Like we said some time back, a good strategy, if you don't absolutely need to have your encrypted data back that instant, is to hold on to it. In the future, the keys might be available, and you might be able to, to unencrypt it. In complete agreement. So we will have a link in the usual places for the article that we're referring to. I highly recommend you read it. It's a lot of fun. And we love stories like this because it um, it gives people, I feel, like an idea about what actually happens behind the scenes. And it's one thing to talk about how something could take over your entire server or something like that, but to actually hear or and or read about you know, some, this actually happening, how it happened behind the scenes, everything just adds so many layers of understanding that otherwise would be kind of hard to, to receive for most people. And it goes to shows that there are many different levels of attack groups out there. You go from the most, like for everything, you go from the most basic run-of-the-mill attacker that just read the tutorial somewhere and is trying to do it to state-sponsored groups that have all the resources and the time and the tools at, the, at their disposal. These guys either weren't very good at what they were doing or just didn't have all the know-how or were just inexperienced at what they do because these types of mistakes that got them caught are the types of things that you eventually learn what to do. Um, and it goes to show that there's this big disparity between the threat models and the threat groups out there and all of that. One size does not fit all in this scenario. If you're afraid of one particular type of attacker, it might not be enough to deter the more advanced ones. But if you go the other way around and you go for the more advanced ones, you'll probably keep these guys out as well. Again, it, it all yeah. depends on the, how exposed you are, how sensitive the information that you have, how secure you want to be. But the threats, they're not all equal. Right. Yep, absolutely the case. So definitely check out the article. And um, yeah, that, that's that's all I'll say on that because I think the rest of the article will uh, speak for itself. It's entertaining. And um, again, we love stories like this. So yep. um, we'll be doing more episodes like this one. Yep. Thank you very much, everybody. And until the next one. Thank Bye. you. Bye.